on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish, the, accomplish this. Good morning, everybody. Advent week two, uh, Restoration Covenant Church. If you're in a house church, great. And maybe your uh, house church is gathering over Zoom. Uh, we're just glad that you've made, you've carved out the time this morning. I think it's a huge discipline. It's something that we show our kids. It's something that we actively push into as a community to gather, to, to make time to worship um, and to uh, renew our minds, to change our minds in, in so many different ways. And Advent is a change of mind. Advent is a, a rethinking and a relooking at the world, anticipating the coming of, of Jesus. Um, and for the, the folks in scripture that we read about in, in the gospels and in the, in the prophetic narratives, there's an anticipation. And for us, we need to have that same anticipation. And today in Advent, we're, we're focusing on preparation. We're focusing on the prophetic uh, waiting and expectation of Messiah, okay, who we call King Jesus to come. And we're not done in that expectation. Yes, we celebrate, we, we're thankful for the cross and the resurrection and all that comes with God being with us, but we anticipate the day that scripture says that God will come back and, and that Jesus will return and make everything right. He will make every road level. He will lift up the broken. And part of that anticipation and part of that expectancy is actually active participation. It's why we're on mission together. It's why we uh, focus on outside of ourselves. Um, had a great conversation this week with some two different conversations actually talking about how this is great and all you and I gathered together in more of a house church setting still trying to connect together and be a community but we can't lose sight of who we are and who we are is a community on mission okay we don't believe it just in being with Jesus uh, we also talk about becoming like Jesus in doing what Jesus did doing what Jesus still does in the world. And so may that be kind of our, our push this Advent season. Maybe um, there's ways that you and your family can think about and your house church can think about what it looks like to be on mission uh, right now, even in the midst of a pandemic um, all around you. And so we've been in this series called A Colony of the King because this letter uh, that Paul sends back to the church in Philippi He's encouraging them to be a colony of the king, meaning to be a colony uh, is not to isolate and you know, hole off somewhere and uh, be on the defensive and try to stay secure. Um, no, a colony was meant to um, change the geography, change the people and the landscape around it, change the culture. And that is our mission. Our mission is actually to push into things that are broken and to bring, okay, the message, the gospel, the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord into all these different areas of our lives and our community. 
And so Paul, he's writing a thank you letter, and, and you know the story. He's an enemy of the state. He's in prison, and, and because he's in prison, he is um, having to care for himself, or people on the outside are having to care for him financially, food, clothing, all of that. And so he's really at the mercy of his friends and his family, and he's alone, and um, he's starving to death. And 800 miles away, uh, the Philippian church hears of his need and sends Epaphroditus with gifts, with food, with finances to help Paul. <coughs> and Epaphroditus shows up. He says, Paul, I have gifts for you. I have provisions for you. And this letter back to the Philippians is a thank you letter. And we've been in it now for 19 weeks. And he says in verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. He, he, Paul is actually saying thank you here. And he is, a good way to translate this is I'm having a celebration. I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. I am thanking the Lord um, because of you. And he just finished talking to them about how to think. And what kind of things to, to dwell on and meditate on and ruminate on. And, and he talked to them about celebrating the goodness of God, that, that God's uh, generosity is clear all over the world, and the world is, is showing it and teeming with God's generosity. And then he goes on and he says, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now that word renewed is a really great word. It's actually a word picture in Greek that talks about the budding of a flower. It's the image you and I get at the end of a long winter where um, you see the first flowers come up and begin to bud. And, and it's just kind of like this uh, moment of thanksgiving and joy that the long winter is past and there's hope that is bringing forth new life. He says, indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And, and we don't know everything going on in this. Uh, maybe it's because they were poor. Maybe it's because they just didn't know or were confused about what was happening. Um, but he's just saying, thank you. I'm alive and well and renewed because of you. And then he goes on. He's like, I am not saying this because I am in need. And this is a really curious line. Um, Paul's saying, just to clarify... I, I'm not saying this because I have any, any needs. And um, it's just like, what do you mean you don't have any needs? You're like starving. You're in prison. You're, you're wasting away. And, and he says this, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Okay? Um, he's like, I, I'm the kind of guy that's okay with little or nothing. I've learned to figure out, you know, how to live contently no matter the circumstances, no matter what I'm faced with. Um, and he, he says in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be beaten. I know what it is to be, you know, in prison, exiled, kicked out, uh, left behind, all of that stuff. And then he goes on, he says, and I know what it is to have plenty. You know, Paul came from plenty. Paul knows what it's like to be full of comfort and friendship and, um, and be in a, in a loving community that shares. He knows what that's like too. 
And he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, the word there, secret, is uh, mueu. Um, you can say that together in your house church, mueu. <laughs> um, in, in the Eastern religions, um, this is kind of a, a nod to one of the Eastern religions um, at, at the time. It was this kind of like the ancient equivalent to Scientology, okay, if you will, Tom Cruise, okay? And it's an initiation. It, 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 it kind of refers to an initiation ritual that you would go through to enter one of the Eastern religions. And what he's saying is, I have gone through the initiation rituals, and I have found the secret to contentment. I have found the secret to what it looks like to be content, whether I have a lot or a little. And contentment, I mean, I think you would agree with me. Contentment is a, it's an elusive thing. It's an elusive feeling. And it's a great one. I mean, it's something, and, and, and let me just say this. What we're getting to today is this idea of contentment, not as a destination, not as a place you arrive at, but it's actually a mode of travel. It's li quite literally how we move through life. And um, this idea of contentment, um, I mean, when you think about uh, the desire for more money and more square footage and a better job and uh, a relationship or, or more of this or more of that or a better situation, that is, um, you know, feeling that is, is, is a natural byproduct of being human. But contentment is a way we live through being human. And so let me, let me just throw this out because I think this is really important. Paul can, Paul is saying that I can be content. Um, and, and there's really nothing from an outsider's perspective looking in. Nothing in his situation that you go, well, yeah. Um, nothing shows in his circumstances that he should be content. I mean, he's not free. He's not in any way living in luxury. He's not married. He, he, he owns no prof property, and he's not really a healthy physical specimen, okay? We know that Paul struggled with things health-wise, and so um, he, the reality is he's dirt poor, he's of bad health, and he's in prison, and he's celebrating in the Lord. And so I think Paul is the kind of guy we need to learn contentment from, learn uh, the journey of contentment in life, and, and really take a hard look on our behavior and how we see the world. And I think there's three key things that Paul shows us here, um, what it looks like to be the colony of the king that Paul is talking about. And a lot of that has to do with contentment. A lot of that has to do with how we travel through the empire that we live in. Okay, so take a look at this. The first one is contentment is something we learn. We have to learn it. It is a practice and a skill that we have to learn, that we have to work at. Um, he, he, Paul says, for I have learned <clears throat> to be content whatever the circumstances. 
whatever they are. And he talks about plenty and want. We'll get into that here in a little bit. But contentment just doesn't come naturally. In fact, harkens back all the way to the beginning of Scripture when in, in the book of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve, you have this perfect situation, um, and they are told they can eat anything in the garden except for one tree, uh, from one tree. And it, it, think, about it, think about it this way. It's a garden full of yeses, and they end up eating the one no. A garden full of yeses, they go after the one no. And the reality is, are we any different? In a world of plenty, in a world full of generosity of God, we're not satisfied. We don't bathe ourselves in contentment. We continually yearn for more. There's always just something else out of reach in our lives. There's always something out of reach um, whether it's a phase of life for you and you're just like, man, if I can just graduate, man, if I can just, you know, get these kids to, to get out of the house or whatever it is. Um, I know some of you are making jokes. I have kids that are right on the edge of that. And so just, you know, that's not, that's not my heart. The point is, um, notice the role the comparison takes in, in our lives. I mean, we end up comparing ourselves and our place in life and our things with other people. Sometimes it's like intentionally. Sometimes we are actually intentionally checking off boxes. Sometimes it's subconsciously. Man, I should be farther along in life financially. Or man, I should be higher in this pay grade. Or man, I should this or that. Or man, our kids should be like this. Or man, I should be married by now. And the comparison game is actually one of the key ways we know we're not living, we're not learning contentment. Um, because when we learn contentment, the word here is actually, Paul says he learned content, contentment, and it's actually translated really funky. It's actually not past tense. It's not Paul learned that lesson long ago, and now he's fine. He's arrived at contentment. No, no, no. It, the word here is actually in Greek, it's a, it's a certain tense it's called the aorist tense, and it actually means there's an ongoing action. There's an ongoing long period of time sequence and action of learning. Paul has experienced, he's, he's experienced the secret, right? The initiation ritual to being content in any and every circumstance. By this point, Paul's fairly well along in life and he's seen a lot of life and he's looked back in his life and he's seen where he's experienced contentment whether he's had a lot or a little and and the reality is you and I can learn contentment we can learn it and the same spirit that lived in Paul lives in me and lives in you and therefore we can learn contentment every day is a lab experiment when it comes to contentment. Every day is a lab experiment. The job you don't love. The house that doesn't feel big enough. The car that struggles to start. These are all things that, I mean, we find ourselves with a barrage of advertisements, especially right now. And Paul says, you and I can actually learn contentment. 
in any situation. Then he goes on to say, um, and there's another kind of nugget we learn from Paul, that contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. It's not dependent on our circumstances. So Paul says, in any circumstance. Now, Paul is talking... And Paul is talking about, about a through line of contentment all the way through life. A steady kind of anchoring rope of contentment all the way through life. And he says, I learned the secret in any circumstance. And we think especially for us in kind of a Western, consumeristic, upward-moving society, right? That the direction we should be going... Um, in our life and in our status and in our finances should be this. And that's not what Paul's saying. That's not what Paul is saying at all. It's not connected to our circumstances. So we, we usually use some sort of a, a, a quotient that goes, when I get blank, okay, when I get fill in the blank, then I will be content and happy. When I get blank, then I will be content and happy. So you can fill this in. When I get a promotion, when I get a vaccine, when I get a vacation, when I get married, when I get a degree, when I get retirement, when I get a new house or a new roommate or whatever it is, fill in the blank. Paul is talking about contentment not being tied to the fill in the blank. He's, he's talking about genuine contentment as a through line through our lives. And we know this is not true. We know this fill in the blank um, quotient is not true. We know it. Because once you get the fill in the blank, once you get the promotion, once you get the, the vacation, once you get whatever, it's nice for us a moment, maybe 30 minutes. I don't know. But then our mind does this trick and it starts to think about what's next. What's the next fill in the blank? The American dream is a carrot on a stick. And part of the problem is you and I live in a culture of consumption and um, chasing. And it's a carrot on a stick in the sense it's always kind of right there. You can always just kind of see it, but it's always just out of reach. And, and then we, we also struggle with the term the rich. And I, I don't need to remind you of this, but I think it's really important to have this perspective. We live in the richest nation that has ever existed on the history of the planet. And we talk about this being an empire. It's an empire of consumption and progress and, and more. And the reality is, we also live in one of the wealthiest, most expensive cities to live in. And some of you who are trying to find a place to live or even look for a place to live lately, have noticed this. Um, every single one of us is what the scriptures calls rich. We have access to anything we need. 
And notice I said need, not want. We have access to anything we need, and we have so many options. And options give us a, a false sense of capability. And what the wrestling happens here in contentment is when it all comes down to what is our really our main and only primary option, primary need, and that's Jesus. And if you're not content now, this is going to ruffle some feathers, but if you're not content right now, you probably never will be based on how you're looking for contentment. So if you're not content being single, and I know it's hard, you may not be content being married. If you're not content uh, working towards your degree and working towards your career, you may not be content in your career. You're not content in the one-bedroom apartment you're living in now, you're not going to be content in the three-bedroom house that you want to have. Contentment is not a destination. If you're not content, then you're not able to truly celebrate the goodness of God, truly worship God for his goodness. You, you are robbed of celebrating the goodness of God. And, and the scriptures talk about the 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 enemy of God, the, uh, the thief, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the things that discontentment brings us is it robs us of celebrating goodness. It robs us of celebrating the goodness of, of God. And Paul speaks about joy and celebration. He talks about joy and rejoice right? 16 times in this letter. Paul is experiencing true joy and rejoicing, and he's in prison, and he's threadbare clothes, and the gift arrives. Understand that contentment is not a destination. It's not. It's, we don't arrive at contentment. It's a mode of travel, and how, it's how you move through life, every season of life, every circumstance of life. Contentment is your, is your horse you ride. And sometimes, the reality is, sometimes in life, are, I mean, let's just be honest, they're better than others. It's easier to rejoice. It's easier to celebrate. But as a general rule, contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. And then the third thing that Paul hints at here is this idea of contentment is a struggle in times of want or in times of plenty. It's in both. He says this in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Translation here, it's really interesting. He says, I have learned how to cope with having too much. I've learned how to deal with that. I've learned, how to, I've learned what that does to me, and I've got to push that off. I've learned how to deal and cope with having too much. 
Paul is a very smart and intelligent teacher. And money, the reality is, and you know this and I know this, but we still can't figure it out. Money, the more you have, the more it pulls you. And I was thinking about this um, conversation we had together last week. This conversation about what we think about, what we put our mind to, what we ruminate on. If it's not enough, if it's life, I need more. If it's I need to earn more and have more and get a bigger home. And if that's what we think about, um, that is changing us. That is fundamentally steering us towards how the empire thinks and operates. And, you know, what's interesting is um, there's one of the Ten Commandments that's repeated twice. I'll just let you guess amongst yourselves which one that is. It is thou shalt not covet. You go, re go back and read it. Go back and read the Ten Commandments. It says it twice. The command literally says, thou shalt not covet. And then it talks about, thou shalt not covet again in the, same, in the same verse. And what's interesting is in Hebrew tradition, in Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize a point, you would say it twice. Well, thou shalt not murder wasn't said twice. But thou shalt not covet was mentioned twice. There's something about the human condition. There's something about um, our, our inward brokenness and bentness that makes us want to covet, makes us want the things that we don't have. One of my favorite authors in, on, on finances and economics and scripture is a guy named Walter Brueggemann. And Brueggemann says that um, the whole preoccupation of the biblical tradition is economics, economics all the way through the biblical tradition. How we see our stuff and our possessions and our money and, and how it has a hold on us. And, and this is really interesting. And, and you could say, well, why? It's because the scriptures understand that the human story, the way our hearts are wired is bent in on itself. We are broken when it comes to contentment, fundamentally broken. Our hearts are tied to money. Uh, in scriptures, money is named as one of the real true replacements of God. And the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, 500 verses on faith, 2,000 verses on money and possessions. It's a huge theme in scripture. And we need to pay attention to it. And even more so now as we're in, you know, kind of the holiday season. Wealth has the power to give you and I by proxy what only God can give you through reality. What does that mean? Well, let me, let me read to you out of Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus. He says, no one can serve two masters. 
Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now listen to what this one scholar says mammon is. I think this is really important for you and my, me to let this sink in, and I'll put this on the screen. It says, mammon means possessions or property. Today we might legitimately translate mammon as things, money, gain, or success. The god mammon is left with its pagan name in the Greek text, and in most translations, in order to remind readers that mammon is a spiritual force who works with tremendous attracting power to draw us into its orbit and out from under the service of Christ. So there's an actual pull. And a few years ago, we did a series on money called inertia. There's an actual inertia to money that actually pulls us and it can be subtle at first. Some of you may be experiencing that pull in a major way right now in your life. The idea is that it actually distracts us from serving Christ. It actually distracts us from mission. And Paul talks about this idea of finding contentment, both in times of want and in plenty. And my guess is for you and I, we're in plenty. So how do we shed this inertia and this power of mammon in our lives? How do we become content? Because mammon in Greek has literal spiritual power and literal authority in our lives. It has powers. It has, it has, like a, it has tentacles into us. And in, in, um, we talk about the spiritual realm. We talk about wealth, um, having a, a part to play in the spiritual realm and, and, and wealth, you know, when you feel secure because of your wealth, that is actually a false sense of security that's listed all the way through scripture. Um, and, and, and so many things just pull at us. So listen to this. This is a, a guy who wrote a great book on, on how, um, how finances and economics operate. Listen to this. He says, for untradeable things that cannot be exchanged, such as friendship, there is no way to trade them or swap them. You cannot buy a true friend or inner peace. But you can buy things that seem to be around it. Proxies. You can buy a dinner in a restaurant for your friends. But there's no way you can buy true friends by doing so. Or you can buy a cabin in the mountains and try to find peace there. But you cannot find peace itself. Ultimately, advertising functions on this principle. They show you something that cannot be traded, a happy family at breakfast, an escape, or beauty, and offer you tradable proxy, some kind of breakfast cereal, uh, a mountain cabin or shampoo. And even though we know this is an illusion and that the actors and extras play in ads, we still start to desire a better pillow. Mine is responsible for troubled sleep. New yogurts and cereals, the happy family at breakfast, and shampoo, even if the model in the ad has probably never used that particular brand. This is how it works. This is how the subtle and the, 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 you know, the architecture of the, of the whole system just pulls at us. What is your proxy this morning?
Let's just be honest. What is your proxy? What are you trying to buy that money will never give you? And here's the thing, my prayer right now in this moment, that the spirit of the Lord who loves you is beginning to wrestle with you right now. I mean, take a look at the, the wisdom of the Hebrew wisdom literatures here. There's a, there's all, in all of the book of Proverbs, there's one prayer recorded. Listen to this. It's the son of Agor. Um, it says, two things I ask of the Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. One, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Two, give me neither poverty nor riches but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may have become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. How many of you ever have, you have ever prayed that? I mean, that is, that's not a prayer that we normally have in our, in our church liturgies, Right? And keep me from falsehood and lies is, is, is the, the lies or the stories that we tell ourselves that aren't true. I think that's a really important prayer. Um, God, show me how I'm lying to myself. Um, and then this other prayer. I mean, it's poverty and riches, you know, like uh, he's not praying for a middle class life. Don't hear that. He's saying wealth has the power to give you proxy that only God can give you in reality. There's something about depending on God and having just enough that allows us to experience the fullness of our creator. Paul found the secret. What is the secret? Well, it's an often quoted book in, uh, verse in Philippians. He says this in verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Turns out the secret has a name and it's King Jesus. The interesting thing is that this verse is a coffee cup verse. You see this on the back of like Christian sports t-shirts. Um, in context, um, it's something different. So win a football game through Christ who gives me strength, that's not really what this is saying. The context of this verse is I can be content in any circumstance through Christ who gives me strength. I can be content right now in COVID prison. through Christ who gives me strength. I can be content right now with all the plans that we've made this year that have unraveled. I can be content right now, not knowing what 2021 looks like. I can be content. I can be at peace through Christ who gives me the strength. To the ancient philosophers, uh, contentment was the ultimate virtue. 
Um, all of this language that Paul is giving us here actually forms a backdrop of kind of ancient Near East philosophical language, particularly Stoicism. And so Stoics were reacting, whereas there was a philosophical reaction to the wealth of Rome, to, to the wealth of the empire. And what Stoicism wanted, what Stoicism believed, was that contentment or self-sufficiency, and we'll get into that here in a second, was the ultimate virtue. Listen to this. We've got two quotes here, one from Socrates and one from Seneca. Socrates, when asked who is the richest uh, on the planet, um, responds, he is the richest who is content with the least for contentment. Uh, sorry, he who is richest, uh, it, it, who is content with the least, for contentment is the wealth of nature. Okay? And then 10 years, really, we, we know this is recorded 10 years before this letter to the Philippians. This is Seneca. He says, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Now, contentment being the ultimate virtue in Paul's day, but there was a difference to what Paul was saying and what the Stoics were saying. The Stoics were talking about self-sufficiency, um, reaction against the empire and all the opulent wealth and the ridiculous waste of the Roman Empire, um, and there was a reaction to that. And I think that uh, we live in a time of opulent wealth and ridiculous waste too. The Stoics said the way you get free from your desire for more, okay, is to detach desire, to detach desire and boost your self-sufficiency. Meaning, um, it's, it's an internal game that you play. It's an internal frame of mind of detaching and boosting um, your own self-sufficiency. It's, it's actually very Buddhist. Buddhism is this idea that freedom from suffering, like to keep oneself from suffering, is found in detaching yourself from desire. Because if you no longer desire, it's kind of like I, no longer having high hopes you don't get let down. That's Buddhism. It says the detaching from desire keeps you from suffering. Paul picks up the language of Stoicism about contentment and he turns it on his head. Because here's what he says. Contentment is the ultimate virtue, but it's not found in self-sufficiency. It's found in God-sufficiency. Meaning, it's not about self-sufficiency. It's about dependency on the living God. It's about we, you know, and here's the thing, you and I, we love our self-sufficiency. We love the fact that we have earned what we've made and we have, we have worked hard and that we've um, put away money for retirement and we're not like people who don't work hard and don't put money away for retirement. And, and what ours is ours. It's this idea of like, hey, God, you've given me... Um, um, I, I'm giving you 10% of what I have earned. And it's just the wrong way to look at it. We worship our self-sufficiency. 
We worship um, our own um, capability. We celebrate our self-sufficiency way more than in the language of Paul, having a great celebration in the Lord. And it's idolatry. I'm just going to be straight up with you. It's our, our self-sufficiency is our idolatry. And it is driving our discontent. The question for us ultimately is, is he enough? Is Jesus enough? Can we celebrate in the Lord in any circumstance? In the middle of any need, right here, right now, Paul's life is all about Jesus and the gospel. And in his thank you to the Philippians, he's doing a critical teaching about what it looks like to live in contentment. And that we're able to funnel all of our energy that we would have put towards accumulation and drive and earning and wealth and, and all of that and funnel all that energy towards the kingdom. Here's what's interesting. This is a practice that is a rinse and repeat practice. Like I said, it's not a destination. You don't wake up one day and go, I've nailed it. I've nailed contentment. I am completely content. No, it is a rinse and repeat practice over and over and over, moment by moment. And here's the thing that's really important for us to understand, and I'm going to wrap up with this. If we are truly going to be a colony of the king, meaning if we are going to show the world what it is like to live as if Jesus is Lord and ruler and in control and making everything right and everything new, how attractive is it to people when we live with just as much anxiety and discontentment as they do? How attractive is that? What, you spend six days of your week wishing you had a better job and more money and a bigger house? just like everybody else, but then you come to church? No, that's not what Paul's heart is. Church, we gotta learn contentment and we need to help each other do it. And we have to get serious about it because the world's watching. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for these words, these, these challenges from Paul that we peer inside of a prison cell in, in Rome. First century Rome. And a threadbare, crumpled, thin, hair falling out guy is celebrating in the Lord. Not because he's received gifts, which he's thankful for, but he's celebrating in the Lord because of who God is. That you, God, are the one who provides. You are the source of our lives. You are the one who, 
who furnishes and, and feeds and gives us everything. God, show us what dependence. Show us how we can depend on you. And for some of us, that mean, means a reordering of our lives. It may mean a reordering of our thought life. For some of us, it means giving money away. Helping, like pushing our resources in a different direction. God, in our communities, will you um, bring our conversation to a place of, of joy and thanksgiving in what you've given us, and yet a challenge to learn contentment. We pray these things in your name. Amen.